Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, spooky grindhouse adventures, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. I couldn't be more excited than to talk about the books we have on our docket today. One of the books we're going to be talking about is one that the whole team has been looking forward to for quite some time, Exterminators. Really exciting to see Leah Williams in full force with an incredible team of female characters, each one more badass than the last in any order you look at them, though extra points because, you know, Laura. <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk about that book a little bit later on. But, you know, TK, you and I spend a lot of time looking at the Marvel Unlimited offerings, and I came across one this morning and I sent it to you at like 6.15 a.m. or something because I was like, I want to do this today day. And we have a new Marvel Voices story. And, you know, before we even get into that, I want to ask you just to kick things off. What makes a horror comic for you horror? It's so funny you ask that because it is a question that is in the last three to six months really changing. It's changing because of things like Ben Percy's Ghost Rider, even a book like Punisher. The elements of Marvel horror really seem to be going finally after decades and decades from from picking up on tropes that a lot of which come from, you know, pulp stories and B movies and that kind of stuff. The type of thing that like you can make references to vampires, but you've got to work a lot of angles to really make stuff in a comic book scary. You're obviously never going to get jump scares. This is a big two comic. So the gratuitous like gore and violence is always going to be minimized. So you really have to work specific elements of print horror and horror artwork that are going to be digestible by a Marvel Comics and now Disney crowd. And that's pretty limiting. And so horror comics have been kind of treading water for a long time. And I think now we are starting to see the work being done on the characters and the stories to really make horror comics their own thing. And I often talk about horror comics in conjunction with horror podcasts. Again, it's kind of a medium that you can't do jump scares that much because it's you know, there's no visual element to it. The sound aspect of podcasts is very cool and it's a way to do some really interesting storytelling, but it also, uh, there's a certain level at which like you can't do wet squelching sounds too much because it just is going to lose all effect. And so it really becomes about taking elements like for instance, in cosmic horror, just this idea that the unknown and unknowable is really frightening and setting that type of stuff up. The mythological roots that come from horror are something that you can really tap into in these media and you don't necessarily have to scare anybody but just get into the where these stories are coming from and how those myths can be respun in a modern context and in comics I think the stories that we're talking about today are a really great example of that but I'm really excited to see where horror is going in the Marvel Universe I'm so excited to see the voices that are on these 
these books. I think we are really just at the first level of the horror comics iceberg. And I'm excited to see what comes going forward. As am I, because they're not just saying, let's take a look at horror comics as they exist at Marvel. Marvel seems to be looking to advance that idea of horror comics. And I know that there's an exciting Disney Plus special coming up for Werewolf by Night. And the whole team is going fucking bonkers over it. You're going to be able to get a live reaction over on the Hubs Plus Network, our partner YouTube channel, where you can check out extended versions of our coverage, our partner series like The Billy Club, right? And so with Werewolf by Night coming into play in the Marvel Disney Plus universe, it only made sense that Marvel would release a Werewolf by Night Unlimited story. And I was so excited to take a look at this story because, you know, especially with my husband Kevo, our show's producer and graphics designer, who is a comics fan, but not always the biggest Marvel comics fan, right? Has a love for sort of everything. I'm always looking for ways to help introduce him to these characters. And, you know, I saw Werewolf by Night and I'm like, you know, I don't know that fucking much about Jack Russell. He's just like that guy who was in, well, Werewolf by Night, (laughs) Strange Tales, and, you know, would show up in like, I don't know, Midnight Suns shit or maybe Moon Knight. But this guy from the Legion of Monsters, who the fuck is he? He was in the Mark Wade Daredevil run. And I click into this comic and Marvel Voices number 19, a Werewolf by Night story, really surprised me. Because first of all, Marvel Voices usually means like minority class. And I was like, are we saying that werewolves are a minority class? And I was happy to discover, no, that was me being perhaps a little silly. Werewolf by Night is a totally new Werewolf by Night. We're now talking about Jake Gomez, a half native, half Mexican, 100% werewolf, 600% super hottie. And I was shocked. Did you even know there was another Werewolf by Night? I absolutely did not. I did kind of make note of the name when you sent me the link, but I just wasn't really paying attention to exactly what I was looking at until we really got down to the fact that we were going to record this. And then my first thought was, well, you know, they're doing Werewolf by Night, the show with Gal Garcia Bernal. Like maybe there's going to be a Hispanic descendant component to this Infinity comic. And that's when I then realized that there is, but it's not because that's part of Jack Russell's background. Or if it is, that's not what we're talking about. It's that it's an entirely new character that I did not know anything about. And it actually makes a lot of sense that this would be the case. Because when I did a little bit of digging in to get a better sense of what Jack Russell has been up to, motherfucker hasn't appeared since 2017. Oh, there you go. I was shocked. His last appearance was when Jerry Duggan was still writing Deadpool. He hasn't shown up since Deadpool Volume 6, Number 29, back in June of 2017. And almost all of his credits in that last few years of appearing were actually Deadpool appearances. Deadpool, the Gauntlet Infinity comic, more issues of Deadpool Volume 6, Deadpool and the Mercs for Money, Last Days of Magic with Deadpool, Spider-Man Deadpool. So Jack Russell really kind of became like a side character and we have some amount of contributors who are very confused who exactly Werewolf by Night is because they're like, wait, is that J. Jonah Jameson's kid, Man Wolf? And I'm like, (laughs) no, it's there are too many characters whose names are just sort of like, I'm a generic horror monster at Marvel for a number of years. And the decision to create a new Werewolf by Night to definitively say new character with, you know, I'm never being because as much as I am proud of my Cuban heritage and my Greek heritage, there's some Anglo in me. You know, it's not hard to see, Um, you know, I'm white, but it's a fact that oftentimes characters were created with white as their basis with no connection to anything 
outside of like, oh, we're all a little bit Arthurian, aren't we? And this generation of characters that get to have dynamic, beautiful heritage. It doesn't always make me think, oh man, you know, now there's so much focus on heritage. No. In fact, when it does make me think that, it just makes me sad that previous characters were just default white. And if they hadn't been just default white, then maybe they would have the same sort of celebration of character heritage that these characters are getting now. Because one of my favorite things is that they go very much out of their way to remind us that Jake Gomez is, in fact, Mexican and Native American. And the reason I love that is because, as we're going to come up with, you know, discussing the Elder Gods, that sort of reminds me of, like, Tarnak and the Sasquatch stuff. So you might say, oh, well, that's Native Canadian. No, this character, he's Mexican. He's not whatever Latinx thing you want to popularize today. This character has a Mexican heritage. Those sorts of staples automatically make this character feel defined. He doesn't read to me as, oh, the Mexican werewolf guy, or, oh, the native werewolf guy. No, he reads to me like a character with complex heritage that I'm excited to connect with. And right off the bat, I felt that way about the atmosphere and vibe that they gave this character. Yeah, where he's living, what he's doing in his day-to-day life, what he encounters is all very steeped in a plausible idea of his culture, where he comes from. It's all baked right into his background. And it's not something that he gets a story that is, you know, kind of generic and semi-whitewashed. And then later, after being in like a dozen issues, he finally gets a native or Mexican writer who comes in and sort of finally fleshes out that backstory, which is something that happens a lot. And I think it's great when it does happen. But a lot of times it's a little disappointing to be like, oh, we really had to make this character generic to get him off the ground and then go back and kind of work through it. If that's what has to happen, that's what has to happen. But in this case, I really like that, you know, it's a native writer putting this character on the page for the first time and that he's doing so in a way that really honors a believable background for a young native man living in the Southwest United States who would also, you know, very believably have Mexican heritage as well. I mean, it all just fits. And speaking of fitting with our show, I'm so excited that we get to talk about the original miniseries that launched this character as well. Werewolf by Night, Jake Gomez debuted first in volume three of Werewolf by Night. And so this is like a really funny thing, but for me and TK, this is kind of magic because as of this, we'll have covered everything that Taboo, uh, Jaime Gomez of the Black Eyed Peas has created, which means that I think technically we are honorary Black Eyed Peas. (laughs) And that is also to say that Taboo has worked on Marvel Voices, Spirits of Vengeance, Ghost Rider, and we've covered all of that incredible Kushala material that he created right around this time. Now, this miniseries, Werewolf by Night Volume 3, ran four issues from October of 2020 to like January of 2021. And it was written by Taboo and B. Earl, who was then credited as Benjamin Earl, who was then credited as Benjamin Jackendoff. I don't know what happened there, but <laughs> the guy's got a bunch of names. It was penciled by Scott Eaton with inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Miroslav Merva, letters by Joe Sabino, and really definitive covers by Mike McCone and Jason Keith. And man, I could not have been happier with this miniseries. Just like off the bat, it was almost all original characters beginning to end, with the exception of Red Wolf, who people may not realize Red Wolf is actually from Secret 
Wars 1872 from July 2015. And this character is super fascinating. This particular miniseries came up the other day for us and I had to do a little bit of uh, reading. And after the events of Secret Wars came to a close and the multiverse was put back together, Red Wolf, who was from Timely, you know, kind of a Timely Comics reference there, found themselves returned to their time and ultimately a temporal disturbance sent this character a hundred years into the future and so now this red wolf from secret wars is like an ongoing marvel universe character who has all of these amazing interactions and he is a native he is gorgeous he is a wolverine to rival wolverines i just top to bottom the characters in this book were enchanting red wolf is a fucking boss and like everything else we hit the ground running with him being a boss him and his partner jj are u.s marshals that are just taking care of shit and they're immediately on the ball with dealing with the same mystery that jake who is a 17 year old boy is coming at from a very different angle the fact that red wolf steps in and acts as a mentor and father figure to jake werewolf by night you know who promises him that they're going to get this under control that he has a woman for a partner that is going to i think kind of serve the same role of mentorship both for jake and for jake's best friend slash romantic interest molly it all really just works you know the symmetry is fantastic but also that there are these really not just unproblematic but really positive relationships between characters where people are stepping in and saying like you need help you need a teacher you need an adult that is going to assist you and not take advantage of you and not even do the comic book thing of like now you're a soldier in the war it's heartwarming and it really feels a little bit more accessible and it's that accessibility that for me permeated through nearly every page of this series i found the intro quick and easy you know the werewolf is coming we quickly find out it's jake he's a nice guy super hot and i want to just hit i know he is 17 in the pages of this book he is drawn like a 25 year old bodybuilder like he is not drawn to look 17 he has a job where he is functionally working in a full-time capacity over the summer i by no means mean to sexualize a character but he is drawn often very sexually very you know very handsome i kind of think that's the one knock i have on this book i probably would have preferred it if he was 20 and was in college not just because i would prefer to have no guilt with how hot he is but because the only thing that seems to make any reason for him to be 17 valid is there's that weird reference to outlawed which didn't work anyway (laughs) so this character being 17 feels like they just wanted him to be a minor so he'd need a training hero and the truth is he would have really benefited from being 19 and the book being a little bit more adult because as soon as you put this in high school well now anything that happens with this kid is endangering a child and it really offsets my feel on the book yeah I feel the same way I mean I can understand that when you make a character still in high school you make them a teenager you set them up to potentially be in like the next Avengers Academy or what have you but I think we've kind of seen that it's few and far between that Marvel makes use of those opportunities. I don't expect that this character will be showing up in the pages of Strange Academy. He's not a mutant, so even if we get a Krakoan school very soon, it just doesn't feel likely that this character will soon be showing up in a teenage book or a school book. And making him 17 me 
means that if he gets any run that's longer really than like a year of publishing, we start to move into the idea that he is probably going to be an adult soon and out of high school. I think cut out the middleman, make him a little older. You know, if he were 20, he would still be somebody that a 13 to 18 year old would read the comic and kind of be like, I want to be like that when I grow. I want to be a cool werewolf. I'd like a awesome dude to show up and mentor me in my powers, that type of thing. Anytime a character is a teenager, I feel like it really needs to be accompanied by a plan for a long-term use of that character in a context where teenagers are appropriate. And there's just not even a hint of one at Marvel right now for this character. Number one, I love the take on his powers. He can transform at night at will. Doesn't need the full moon. And as long as he's playing his music and keeping himself centered, he doesn't go full werewolf. Like, I love that. Everything about that, you know, Kid Riot, the speedster character that we created for our universe, Kid Riot, his headphones are a signature part of him the way he uses music to propel him it's like you know a thing that is really central to an idea of what many of us would do if we were heroes those of us for you know whom music is such a part of who we are i was in like a dozen bands i have like albums out there it's such a huge part of who i am that of course it comes into my creation and seeing taboo do the same thing by having his character really engage with sort of like the idea of music the aesthetic of the beats as a form of who they are and that presentation of other self as well music is part of him even when he's a werewolf i think that's really great and you know the whole reason i came to this is because they say that he learned that at 13 when he discovered his first chest hair and then they draw him oddly hairless the whole book but fine i do feel especially once we see him later on floating in the giant tank that is the one misstep just should have been an adult and all that said i think this character could really have a great longevity especially with the number of amazing supporting characters that were created for this first issue. I don't know that JJ and Molly really jump off the page uniquely, but I did really love the development we got. And like, I never mistook Red Wolf for Werewolf by Night, even though they're both native men with wolf in the name. The book did such a great job defining everyone. And I think you're right that Molly and JJ are not the most standout characters, which in a, you know, we're talking about four issues of the miniseries and one Infinity comic. Like, there's not a ton of time for everybody to stand out. What I will say is both relationships really stand out in Marvel Comics. This partnership between Red Wolf and JJ, where they're really in sync, there is not a romantic or sexual tension to it at all, but they are plausibly a man and a woman that work together and do great work together and clearly like each other a lot. A lot of times when a man and woman are on page together in a comic, you have to immediately be like, will they, won't they? Or, or give them something else. And I think following that instinct doesn't always make the most sense. A lot of people are just in professional relationships with somebody of the opposite gender that they would otherwise possibly be attracted to, but it just isn't going to happen in this context. Similarly, Molly and Jake have a really strong rapport. And what's different for them is there clearly is some attraction, but there also is a deep affection and love. They are not uh, work partners. This is not his work wife. This is his best friend, possibly somebody who he could have a romantic interest in, and somebody who has, she's his his one-person Scooby gang. She is his support, and she's figuring all this stuff out, too. She's figuring out how to help. The, the music, the headphones, all of that as sort of a much better spin on the, hey, big guy, sun's going down Hulk thing really worked for me because she feels really confident and strong, and she's going to play him the music that's going to set him up right, but it's 
it's never like only she can do it. She's never helpless, but she does not have powers. And there are times where, yeah, she would be in danger that he is not in. So she's got to hightail it out of there. And that is totally okay. But she's never a damsel in distress. Just really strong aspects of all of these relationships, even if the characters themselves in five issues don't all get the chance to stand out in the same way that these main characters. I agree. You know, the characters that maybe don't stand out is Granny Rora just sort of feels like magical grandma character that is just sort of that everybody's got a magic grandma and like I had magic grandmas I get it but she doesn't really have a whole lot of personality outside of it but at least she's not a deus ex machina magic grandma yeah she's not a tree who's gonna sing to us about how we will understand I completely agree Pathmind did nothing for me I didn't even really get a sense of the character's visuals exactly so with no real connection to that character I did just want to say Ms. Makowski is like incredible. I thought that design was amazing. Amazing design. Hugely important villain to bring back. Vaguely at the end, I was like, Claudine Renko, Miss Sinister? Like there's there's something there. Just a great villain. The Lady Hedge, the cyborg, Mr. Null, and I forget what the third one was, but surprisingly great character design. Not really fleshed out that much, but not generic. Like these all four super powered villains are ones I would absolutely bring back and I think could have really interesting backstories and at the same time the like border patrol white assholes the fact that they're completely forgettable and generic is amazing in a very different way yeah and I also love that dig at male energies I'm not saying all male energy is bad (laughs) (laughs) that was such a great great way to really give us a sense of what we're reading you know admittedly I felt the first issue was a little too info heavy and then the second issue was real real light that first eight pages is just a fight it's a fun romp it's really beautiful i think the creative team had some really great energy here script to art there's a sense of you know i'm not saying that no celebrity should ever step into another role right if you're asking me if i think that rihanna puts on a lab coat and heads down to the fenty labs and begins personally mixing the chemical compositions for her newest scents i'm going to tell you probably not but if you're asking me if Taboo, who was probably best known for, you know, getting us in a partying mood, he's often letting us know about the feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. It's what's golden, you know? And when you're thinking about that guy, I don't think writes a really compelling, well-beaded comic. And I don't know how much of that is the guy who's, I don't know which name is real. Is it, is his name Wyndham Earl? (laughs) But whatever his name is, maybe he's the guiding force. But this was a really tight way to do even things that I didn't love. Yeah, I think so rarely do we get this well-served an introduction for a completely new character, especially one that is a spinoff or an update to a property that, yeah, kind of fizzled. Werewolf by Night, as was pointed out earlier, kind of fizzled out five years ago or three years ago from when this first miniseries was published. And I think there's a dividing line somewhere in there between that old horror comic style that I was talking about where it just got to a point where the only thing you could do with certain characters was put them in a comedy action book like Deadpool and work with them that way because they were so kind of pulpy and silly but then I think if you really want to do new modern spins on horror properties you do have to have some resets and I think doing a new version of a character like Werewolf by Night makes total sense but it's a big task to introduce 
a whole new dude with a new set of powers with a whole world around him, including, you know, a mentor figure, villains, a mystery around what's going on with his parents, the true, well, his father, his mom died, the true nature of his werewolf powers. The fact that in four issues, they set up enough for this character that he could be in any book coming up or he could get his own ongoing and there's enough meat there to absolutely do 12 issues. That's, that is a feat. And I feel as though the thing we keep focusing on is the characters and that's not even a knock because I I definitely said that I only had one knock against the book and I don't want to change that stance because I don't think I do change that stance. I think if you were reading this book for a plot, you're not going to find what you're looking for. The fact that I really relied on that recap at the beginning of issue three to understand what I'd been reading isn't the best. I don't know that all of the beats are as clear as the character development is because when you write a book and you throw in, you know, internal monologuing, you're giving us access into that character's mind. And I want that. I want to see into their mind. But the thing that is the trade-off, that is the the give and take, the rough of it, is that now this book spends a lot of time in that character's head. So you're giving up, you know, 40% of the letters to, and this is already kind of a letter-heavy book. <laughs> you're giving up, you know, 40% of the letters to just internal reactions. And the opening saying, essentially, for issue three's recap, Jake Gomez can transform into a werewolf on command. Teams have, teens have been disappearing off the res. Jake intercepts a truck on its way to his summer job at Life Pharmaceuticals. He's attacked by human hybrid monsters. He then runs into Red Wolf and JJ, U.S. Marshals, who want to help him. I don't know that all of that came across in a way that would have been a supported read a month apart. If I had read one in October, one in November, and one in, you know, started issue three in December, I might have said, thank goodness for this refresher, because I would remember the story beats, the does Jake have feelings for Molly, the Red Wolf is here to be a supportive, emotional figure that doesn't withhold affection, but isn't here to coddle you. Like, I think the setup of this as a pilot maybe came across a little bit more than the execution of this as a film. I think that's right. A lot of the subtle background plot stuff, especially like the teens missing from the res, really was lost in those first couple issues for me until it was really blatantly put on page and they started really pointing it out. In the meantime, I became very invested in the characters themselves. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is a relatively generic plot. This is the first couple episodes of Buffy where you really know exactly who Buffy is, but it's not super engaged or interesting with her internal life that takes seasons to develop. And a lot of times I think that is okay. I guess in this case, the only bummer is that we got these four issues and it took a while to get the next one that really featured Jake Gomez. And that's this Infinity comic, which is kind of that internal story and is has gorgeous art, really picks up on what we got in this miniseries. But it does seem like it's probably a one-off. And now I just really would like to know where this character goes next. I would love to have seen this mini followed by even, you know, another four issues, but ideally 12 issues maybe, where we really got to go big and long and get a really solid story with Jake in it. Because some of the magic of this book really does come from the ingenious interaction between the characters. And I wonder how much of that is, you know, a unique perspective. But if we know that Jake holds control with music, the fact that Red Wolf uses a magical song to whistle him down is brilliant. It's like actually 
actually understanding your own canon that you just made up and like that's crazy cool and the scene at the diner the i'll be your teacher first of all i need that video fuck number two it's amazing that's sort of like even if you take the fact that they're both super hot out of there that sort of moment of paternal affection of caring of two men of uh, you know two men of color interacting over affection and to have it dressed so beautifully with the song of the wolf page and then that beautiful splash there really is something so authentic to an experience that this book made me want to have I also wanted to just point out real quick love that Mighty Maxine's is a solid spot for Taboo to center all of his different stories that he tells in the Marvel Universe. Yes, it really gives a writer a sense of kind of consistent appearance. There's a value to that that I think is really fun. It's like developing a new character, giving locations that are your signature location as a writer for where you're going to. It's just a fucking diner. Like, it's not a big deal. But that we have seen Kushala and Johnny blaze in there we've seen dr strange we've now had these characters it is a revolving point around the now taboo corner of the marvel universe that i think has real potential for other people to use the location and the characters that surround it and the sort of i mean at this point there's got to be a little mystical juice to mighty maxines that you know other people could pick up on i don't disagree i love that i think it's sort of the way you see like magical objects travel character to character when the writer changes books or like a side character switches from this title to that title because that writer loves that character. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to look at it. I love that value added to the story. You know, I also thought that they used what little page space they had really well. I loved that once they figured out that it was a trap, we didn't wait to see Jake get captured. The next panel is just Jake captured, basically. And we don't really have a whole lot of monologuing in the final issue but while the final issue does end very quickly so much of what we get did leave me excited for more stories it's sort of shocking that after this miniseries ended in 2021 the character's next appearance was just a few weeks ago as a one panel appearance in damage control but that's really shocking to me because i felt this miniseries ended in such an engaging way i would have thought by now we would have seen these characters in one of the voices specials or appearing in something. Yeah, I mean, I would compare it even to uh, a character like Terry Bloss's Ava, who is cousin to Reptile, who has shown up in the pages of Strange Academy, who had even a little bit of, significantly, I should say, less page time to develop as a character, but who anybody who read the story was immediately charmed by and really wanted to see get a little more room as a character. And that is happening slowly, but pretty clearly over time. This is another character that a a creator with a comparable ethnic heritage that is telling stories that I think will resonate with people who are underrepresented in comics really got a chance to do the thing and then unfortunately it just wasn't picked up on in that same way but this I mean this Infinity comic is exactly the type of thing that I would want to see just I want to see more of it now I, I really want to know that there is a soon to be published upcoming appearance for this character. The fact that we ultimately do get it in 
in this month's or this today's holy shit marvel voices comic you know i couldn't be more excited i read this right off when i found that it was there and one of the things that i was so pleased with was even though i was definitely disappointed to see that it was not the same creative team i was ecstatic that this creative team really did honor the previous work marvel voices infinity comic 19 published october 5th was written by owl going back penciled and inked by allison sampson colored by triona farrell with letters by joe sabino and i am always here for a one-off story like always but this was maybe the best self-contained bit of horror i have read from marvel in maybe a few years couldn't agree more very simple story but really well stylized both artistically and in terms of the writing itself not a single thing was awkwardly changed or reworked from the background that we got from the original mini if that first four issues was a pilot this is just a really solid episode of the show and let me say that the show looks fucking great this art was perfect i don't usually go this hard for art where i'm like the story was good the art was incredible i feel that this story was really fun it was very in the spirit of marvel and it also had so many incredible twists and turns to it that kept me engaged and kept me excited about what was happening but fuck fuck the art was i could have probably understood the art without the dialogue like this was intense it was shocking the use of non-defined line, the use of sort of a sketchy, stretchy vibrancy to the color, the brightness contrasted with all of the blues and the greens. There is such passion in these colors. The use of red is so seldom. The amount of white space increases as the fights become more visceral so the background falls away. Like, I cannot go hard enough for this art. It also does the thing that horror comics need to do, which the style is so crisp and different than a house style or a super either realistic or cartoony style that it when you get the horrifying Wendigo villain, the visuals are enough to stir something horrific in you. Like I said, you're never going to have a jump scare in a comic. You're also not going to have anything that is so gory, bloody, or violent that it speaks to the television and film horror genre. But you can do stuff that really evokes horror moods and evokes horror tropes and stories through art. It just has to be the right kind of art. And this is exactly the right kind. Because the things that this book chooses to hold on to and not sort of let fall by the wayside is the book chooses to remember that the thing that made this so special was Red Wolf and Molly and this connection to the music. I don't get some like bullshitty, oh yeah, this is basically the same character. No, this feels like we are picking up exactly where we left off with this character in a way that I find really fulfilling. And whether it's Molly and her talking about the music or it's that Red Wolf hooked them up with this amazing tech, which just that kind of touch reminds me that these writers care about, you know, previous writers' work. And generally speaking, I thought the setup, the quick, hey, you might not know 
this werewolf by night, but here's an everything you need to get rolling, plus the incredible intro images. I'm just so impressed with the attempt here. I think it's great that Owl Going Back is another native writer who's also a horror writer, who's an award-winning horror writer, so he obviously really gets the genre. The fact that this specifically takes place in Canada, it is dealing with a native Canadian myth in the Wendigo, it is acknowledging, like, we are interacting with other native traditions. We're no longer at a point where all native stuff just gets lumped in one category and white people can read it and not really care. Like, if we're going to have a Southwestern Hopi Indian half-Mexican person in Canada, we're going to make sure you really understand, like, no, these things are not the same, and this is a, a fish-out-of-water story in some ways. Like, this is not a person that is familiar with Canada or Canadian traditions. His partner does need to look up what's going on on the internet to explain how to solve the the, the fight or to, how to stop the villain. I really like that it takes the time in a very short story to remind us that, no, you do not get to lump all Native stories together and not all these tropes are the same thing. Because the idea that it's the Wendigo makes it so classically Marvel. But then, you know, adding this other layer to it, it's a different Wendigo. It's Swift Runner who ate his fucking family. So he has a heart of ice which needs to be melted by being ripped out and tossed in a fire. The visual there, the symbolic relevance of the magic, it's, you know, so when we say something, isn't that kind of on the nose? Well, things that are on the nose were the oldest stories. That's how they became on the nose. That's why they're the thing you go to. It's a really great way to incorporate an elder myth, an ancient thing. And, you know, the idea that the thing that they talk about more than anything is hopefully his spirit can rest now. Hopefully his spirit can rest now. The idea that this isn't a character who wants revenge. This isn't a fuck him up, punch him up fighter guy. He is a werewolf, but he is a werewolf who's in control, who retains love of human art and connects with his friends and family. He has a culture which tells him that strength comes from community, and he remains in that community. It's such a terrific element to what they're trying to say. On the whole, I am so thrilled with how this Marvel Voices reshaped everything. You know, it's a spooky season, and Werewolf by Night is getting a TV movie show horror project thing. I don't know. I'm really excited for it. I'm super gay for it. It's my aesthetic. It's my, you know, I love horror. It's actually like my favorite genre in all of the world. I really love being cerebrally scared or emotionally put in peril by a story. And there is something so great about that I could send this along to, like, you know, series contributor Kyle, not a blood and guts guy. A horror guy in some ways, though, likes the, the scary story when it's done really well. And this gave me an opportunity to send a scary story that wasn't all blood and guts that told a story about a, a hero that I cared about following, that I want to see become a big deal in the Marvel Universe. You know, TK, you and I joke all the time about how any second is Black Tarantula's moment. <laughs> Fuck if I wouldn't team up Black Tarantula with this werewolf by night. That would be a banger book. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm just really glad that you and I took this morning and said, hey, let's take a look at five issues. And holy shit, I think we're both walking away. A huge fan of this character and property. Yep. A huge fan of the character and property, ready to see the next lace that he's going to be. I think, you know, Black Tarantula, fantastic example of two completely seemingly opposite characters that could play really well together. But there's a lot of other ones as well. You know, somebody that is more like this character that I would love to see him paired with his Kushala. There's just a lot of options. This was a really fun way to kick off some spooky season coverage. I, like Kyle, am not a big blood and guts horror person. I'm not a big jump scare person, but I love horror. I always talk about how much I love horror podcasts. I love cosmic horror. I love really cerebral stuff. I love horror that dovetails with mythology. And this is just really a fantastic example of that. And, you know, it's like Ghost Rider. It really is pulling new versions of horror for comic books that I think are going to set up writers for years to come and move a lot of these properties away from pulpy, really early to mid 20th century horror tropes that just don't work for comics anymore and not for the audiences. And I look forward to exploring a lot of this throughout the rest of October. It is such a pleasure to get spooky with you all once a year. I really love our Halloween coverage and fucked if we're not gonna do it now but it turns out Taboo has a new comic book coming out it's a Spider-Man horror book we had a great time covering the last Spider-Man horror book I can't see us not doing this one you know Taboo if you ever want to be on X's for podcast we would love to have you on to talk about your incredible body of comic work I'm a fan of your music as well but I really really love your original characters and your takes on them and that's the thing I'm most excited about. This episode has so much good character pulp and in places you wouldn't have expected you know, we fell in love with Jake Gomez but in our next bits of coverage we have Exterminators, which is Wolverine, Dazzler, Boom Boom Meltdown, Boomer you know, everybody's favorite high-functioning white trash alcoholic, Tabby Smith and Jubilee. That's such a fucking lineup, man and the way that Exterminators really explored character as well I think this was a really well-paired episode. Yeah, we got old werewolf horror tropes updated and we got old grindhouse horror tropes updated. What a perfect way to spend a day. Well, hopefully this starts off your spooky season right with a combination of werewolves, vampires, and a whole lot of blood and guts coming your way next. We have double coverage of exterminators. And as always, it is two very different experiences room to room. So you definitely want to check those out. TK, until they hear your voice in the next segment, where can everybody find you online come find me on twitter and instagram at x nate x gray x you can find me all over this show as well as on our partner channel as mentioned before over on youtube the hubs plus network where you can check out all sorts of amazing content including the billy club which is my and tori sheehan who you're going to check out in this next segment's exploration of daredevil if you've been enjoying the daredevil stuff you're hearing here you'll definitely appreciate more of the daredevil stuff over there you can also check out my twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n as well as the twitter and instagram for this show at X's for Podcast and X'sForPodcast.com. So until next time, enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Get spoopy, guys, and we'll see ya. (laughs) 
Hey everybody, this is a segment of X for Podcast that I have been looking forward to forever. We are talking about the amazing exterminators. Fuck yeah. I am Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, not like Dazzler in Is This Murder World? I don't know. I'm Kyle. <laughs> you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A, and my pronouns are they and them. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. And you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram and you know, making a general nuisance of myself. And I hope you survive this episode. Unlike what seems to be like millions of aliens, demons, and most of Tabby's stomach content. I love the setup of this, right? Going into it, I was like, oh no, she's going to be upset because she broke up with Dr. Nemesis. Boo. Like, glad that she broke up with him, but boo. Sorry that she feels bad about it, but it's not. She's she's upset about this, you know, two-timing scuzzbag Alex here. I love that, like, one of the first things you get to see her say is, all you had to do was keep it in your pants for one week. I love that there was a time frame on it. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. That's very lenient. It sounds like she was away for a week and came back and he had already slept with a bunch of people. I'm not even mad about the weird continuity that, you know, like, that she's in a little small apartment in L.A. When the last time we saw her house, it was in Wolverine and she had this huge house with a big sound system. I'm not even mad about that because this book is just so fun i can overlook that like seriously she can have multiple homes for when she needs a particular location in la yeah she's a famous pop star she's got an apartment and also a giant complex in la yeah i'll tell you what else she has a giant of (laughs) that dump truck ass i gotta say (laughs) everybody in this issue is so fine just drawn exquisitely sexy really great job carlos gomez it looks so damn good everybody looks great the praxis booty shorts amazing oh my god those praxis booty shorts like this is the first time i've not been upset to see the butterfly stage makeup come back because it was modernized in such a beautiful way like with that with that beautiful short short jumpsuit Mm-hmm. And the colors in this issue are so good. Like Brian Valenza does the colors on this and beyond just the thought bubbles. I don't know. They're really doing something great with the synergy here on the colors. I think they look phenomenal. I love the various levels of tropes that these three ladies fall into. Like Dazzler is the more, you know, she's the more stuck up one, right? Jubilee is at times she's like the dumpy depressed one. But like, I'm sorry, but that big sweater with those amazing leggings are hot as fuck and like boom boom it's just the draw i can so relate to uh depressed queer jubilee in this one (laughs) (laughs) tank top and her costume boots what do we think about the whole uh jubilee just hangs out with boom boom in her underwear like (laughs) dripping stuff on herself this is a very I like the dirtiest tank top and her pink costume boots with like, and why does she live with Boom Boom? I don't know, but I love it. Hey man, this is not a Quentin Tarantino film. I don't always need to see feet, but oh my God, that was funny as hell. And you know what? Honestly, to me, it makes sense that the disaster mess would live with the other disaster mess. Yes. Yeah. Like they balance each other out. One of them is trying their absolute damnedest and the other is like, I am a functional alcoholic. You're going to have 
have to get real comfortable with a lot of shit real quick. And, you know, our disaster is like, yeah, no, I can, yeah, no. It was super refreshing to see Jubilee, like, sexualized as an adult character for once, because a lot of a lot of people who draw or write uh, Jubilee know that she's a mom and an adult person who literally is raising a child, but either they see her as the child that they knew when she was first introduced, when she was literally a child, or for some reason they don't think maybe that a mother can be sexual or sexy, but, like, this is the first time we've seen, I have ever seen Jubilee, like, portrayed as somebody, like, with a sexuality or with, like, that side of her acting like an adult who can go out on a night in, like, thigh highs and an overlong t-shirt. That is really nice to see. Like, she's finally being treated as an adult woman here and not as, like, a child who is also raising a child or something or, like, a non-sexual mother. Also, I would love to thank the artist for drawing everybody more realistically. None of this, like, super uber-duber, like, super tight waistline that you're like, okay, whatever. Like, they have some thickness to them. They have some curve. They all look, like, fit and toned and muscular. Like, they, you know, like, they work out and do a job saving people and whatnot. But also, they look very distinct and like themselves. The skin tones are ever so slightly different, and I love that, especially for Jubilee. She looks like she's been colored correctly, and the facial structures look so much better than certain other books I have seen her represented in. Yeah, and her hair looks great. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. The hair is off the hook for all three of these ladies. Yes. You look like if Barbie was a sex addict. Great line. That is so in character for Jubilee. Even when she was a kid, she was always just like, oh, I'm so mad that all these women are so sexy around Wolverine. And it's great to see that like resurface a little bit. And I love to see Boom Boom not only be recognized as a fully functional raging alcoholic, because she is. She absolutely is. And honestly, there are people out there who are alcoholics. It is their condition and they have to drink in order to function, but they still function and they get shit done she leans into that white trash bimbification oh thank you for calling me a bimbo in my incredibly high femme campy mini dress with hearts all over it my knee-high socks and the dress does not cover almost anything because because you don't have to apologize for being femme you don't have to apologize for being you know just yourself and wearing clothing that fits you and that you love you're not dressing for somebody else's gaze this is a woman who is so dressing for her own fucking self and knows that it just also rocks that other people get to enjoy the look too Mm, yeah Boom Boom is like a modern day Dolly Parton. She's like, I'm a bimbo. Fuck yeah. Jubilee and Boom Boom, not Dazzler got dressed up like in what I would consider extremely sexy outfits like these are provocative they're beautiful they are just high fashion in a, you know not high fashion but like highly fashionable for people who do not have a lot of money mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they're not dressing up for men they're not going on a date they're dressing up for each other and for themselves and then of course Dazzler is just wearing like jeans and a t-shirt because she's <laughs> she must be comfy she's having a hard time that's the best part of it it's like they aren't going out dressed up looking for sex and they aren't expecting sex but they are still dressed up sexy for yeah. themselves. And I gotta say, the the way Carlos Gomez just has Tabby posing, especially in these bar scenes, is mm, so, so beautiful. There's so much excitement, so much energy. Yeah, these all really feel like they're characters in a way that, like, some of them haven't felt like this in a while. This feels like the adult version of the Jubilee from the Claremont era and the Jim Lee times, and this feels like 
like the boom boom who could have been the boom boom who was an x-force you know like yeah she likes being a bimbo but she's also like really smart it's just a thing she turns off you know i love dazzler's wearing bell bottom or flare bottom yeah her flare bottom with like chunky heels there down there i love it i fucking love it and and i love that the the three girls on the that last squad that emma frost had just like throw all their powers at them are hanging out and they're like we are not hanging out with that scuzzy cajun (laughs) it's a refreshing friendship between girls that is amazing to see and yeah they they are coming together because allison broke up with a guy but you know they're not even like their conversations aren't talking about the man they're talking about them just being fucking fabulous drunk ladies and being depressed and like it's so amazing yeah this is the best version of like women hanging out after a breakup and comforting each other because it doesn't have the usual trope of let's go find you another guy that or like oh we're just gonna talk shit about the ex all night and then you're gonna like break down and end up calling him or texting him yeah they don't do that at all they're just having fun as themselves getting back to themselves enjoying time and they all get like little character moments that are great like when jubilee breaks the bar stool immediately the moment there's a fight and it's like now i have weapons like yeah i was trained by wolverine oh my god i love that that's her intro break bar stool i'm like how much swinging power do you have that you can shatter a bar stool like good god they may be wooden bar stools because she grabbed it as soon as she realized that they're being attacked by vampires. Yes. Yeah, they gotta be wood. Uh, got they to have be to be wood. They have to be wood. I also love the fact that when they have boom boom fainting and I love these panels. They were so well done. A, she is built like that. But B, even when she is laid out on that booth seat splay leg, such care was taken to cover those key areas that you would want covered when you're in a bar. Yeah, that that may have been an editorial choice. but (laughs) I'm like, it may have been editorial, but I appreciate that it was done and that that was put into the book. Yes, you can show that she has hers, but thank you for covering the panties because that is not like, oh, this is my fighting leotard you know we're gonna go fight out in the bikini no it's underwear it's something you want to be covered i love that as soon as they take those tequila shots they're like what the fuck was that they're like oh why was it gritty why was it gritty then we get alex showing up and he's like hey babe like he's like this is payback for you destroying my vinyl collection oh my god (laughs) just because you were collecting them when they came out you little bitch (laughs) he is a vampire so maybe he was like look at how far open his shirt is oh yeah he's totally disco fied <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's also a vampire thing yeah it is it is you gotta, you gotta make sure your amulet is displayed like i love how jubilee's like uh wait how did you not know that was his like light bringer amulet <laughs> like duh i almost died laughing yeah these vampires are really prepared to take on the specific trio of boom boom jubilee and dazzler in a way that is like scary like obviously they were ready for dazzler but just the fact that they all happen to have light or explosion or plasma powers and the Lightbringer seems to like negatively affect all of those is like a level of preparation that is ominous. I'm waiting to see where that like where that all leads because there's got to be a greater mastermind at work and we're you know we have no idea really who yet but like the fact that like it starts out all right let's try to stake some vampires real quick while we're drugged like it's fucking amazing and okay I love the the page where the lady is just walking her dog and she's like it's time for the twerculator and she sees what's going on at the bar and she's like uh nope 
that is straight up black woman senses. Yeah, we're going to be, nope, nope, nope. I mean, even the dog was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> living, that, living in that 2% right there, just nope. So, but I also think it's weird that because in the vampire arc of X-Men a few years ago, what, like 10 years ago maybe now, when Jubilee became a vampire, Dazzler did run into some vampires wore amulets like that. So I was kind of like, mm, she should know about those. But then it is Dazzler. I'm just worried about who her next team up is musically. She's not going to remember all the fights that she had. <laughs> not I love how this is really leaning into, as they called it, the grindhouse of X, you know, and uh, according to, according mm-hmm. to the ability that was the original title i don't know if it was given by jonathan hickman or jerry dugman or whatever but like that was the the idea and i think that fits really well because like i mean there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of like sexy people getting blood splattered all over their nice clothes and we immediately start that with the next scene but i do want to just say i am in love with any time that there is swamp horror in a comic even if it's weird shark ghouls even if it's like hanging out on a raft in the middle of gross water please always give me swamp horror oh my god the moment you said grindhouse you were dead on you were dead freaking on and they fit each one of the tropes you always have one that's like slutty bimbo fied like baby doll then you have the one who's like more sporty like in charge knows what they're doing and then you have um the former vampire always like yeah <laughs> And then you always have like the the rich, pretty, privileged girl who's also like the sweetheart of the group. And I'm like, oh my fucking god, it is a grindhouse. I love this book more and more. I need this in my life. Yeah. Wait, wait. Who is the rich, pretty, privileged girl, and who is Dazzler? Dazzler. Okay. Both her and Jubilee could fit the rich, privileged girl. Jubilee is the sporty one. She's always been like a little bit more sporty, a little bit more streetwise, like you know, assertive, in charge. Boom Boost, straight up white trash baby doll, bimbification, oh, yeah. yes. And then Dazzler is, is the pretty, privileged, slightly more well-off one who's like the sweetheart of the group. Like, oh my god, I love it. Can we just appreciate how complex and nuanced the character of Boom Boom is? Like, Tabitha is a character that a lot of people don't want to give any credit to because they just like don't know her whole history or haven't liked her. But like, it's so fun that this is a character who has been a Black Ops assassin since she was a teenager and met Beyonder in her first appearance and is now a bimbo in like a really tiny mini dress drunk as fuck getting splattered with blood and trying to deal with that like these are all the same character and none of that is contradictory in the black ops assassin and the white trash who had like a shitty dad who was never there and like met a godlike being but here she is at this stage in her life this is a real turn for her Oh, yeah, I think this is, like, the perfect amalgam of all Tabby. And the humor, like, when she wakes up and she's like, Ah, Jubilee, did you eat dairy again? (laughs) (laughs) Jubilee's got some bad parts. You know you're only punishing yourself when you do this, right? I love it. I love it so much. Her blowing up the head of the shark creature and then just getting, like, those globules of blood all over her. But thankfully not much on her dress at that time. Yeah. I love that Carlos Gomez is committed to drawing this like super gross horror scene, but also like he d- does not forget that Tabby is really attractive and juxtaposes them in the same scene. Like that splat is a work of art. Oh God. Yes. Like a cheesecake pose in an appropriate manner and still covers the goods. Again, this is what I'm talking about. So well done. Sexy as fuck, but without having to like literally give up the trick. I'm like, oh, it's masterful how you do that. It's a 
cheesecake pose that you would like naturally be in if you were recoiling from gross gore splattering all over your body. If you had had the original trope instead, like if it's really been a grindhouse instead of instead of being tasteful yet sexy at the same time, like somehow her top would have blown off. Or <laughs> uh, she was rogue. <laughs> if it was rogue or clothes. Love that we are finally getting sexy X Men comics. I know X Men comics have historically been sexy. That is a thing, but it's nice that Marvel is allowing them to put a parental advisory on the front, do a little warning, and then like actually cut loose a little bit with like, yes, these are sexy characters, and we can actually portray them as this without it being like weird or objectifying. Like it is objectifying, but in the way that like Grindhouse sexploitation is, and these are the subjects. You know, these are not like people to be ogled, except for by the reader. These are this is a fun time and i love it that the agency is with the characters the characters are dressing themselves this way the characters are giving these compliments to each other about their bimbification the characters have agency which is something that is so often missed or 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 completely eliminated on purpose because they're going for that objectification or bimbification for the male gaze this is clearly not done for the male gaze and it's done so beautifully. I just, oh, I, I need more of these. Like, this is sexy while also being well, like, aware of itself. Like, just, oh, it's so good. I don't know, Raven. I think the, the male gaze also really enjoyed this. <laughs> I mean, it's not exclusively for the male gaze. Like, this has something for everyone. And I no, it does. It does. It absolutely does. Because trust me, I'm disrespectfully, respectfully looking as well. To further the balls to the walls-ness of this, Jubilee wakes up in a fucking monster truck. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, going full speed already. <laughs> full speed, she can't really go in, she can't really stop, which, you know, causes a little bit of a story issue where I'm like, why didn't she fall off the thing if she can't stop? But like, okay, why did they put her Jubilee sunglasses on her? I love that. I love that they put, they needed to protect her eyes Look. if they kill her. Yeah, there's a few art inconsistencies during this sequence with Jubilee in the monster truck, but I'm willing to completely overlook them because this has just been, like, absolute dumb fun. I don't expect it to necessarily be, like, perfect, and the art, ins- the art inconsistencies didn't, like, really bother me. Like, Jubilee is missing her tights at one point when she's in the monster truck, but they're back on later. But, like, who cares, you know? <laughs> I did not notice that. There's so many things going on in this particular section of the book that I completely missed that her foot was bolted to the accelerator and that her hands were handcuffed in such a way that she couldn't actually hold the steering wheel. I, I only noticed the handcuffs when like they were trying to take her out of the, the truck at the end and I'm like, wait, wait, why can't you just leave? Oh, there's handcuffs. There is so much going on on the screen while not being overly cluttered. So like there's tons of action happening and you're following it and there's so much to take in, but it's not like an overly busy field of vision. Even I didn't catch the missing fishnet tights oh well i mean i was paying close attention to be fair but you're distracted by this beautiful panel of all the trucks coming towards her truck and just her little head in the bubble and she's like fuck <laughs> yeah this this whole sequence feels so murder world maybe not arcade but like it's got to be an old murder world or something like who else would have this mm-hmm. and why is nobody like god damn it is this arcade again right well, they, they don't think it's arcade because they haven't heard the slang but yeah like i said art inconsistencies uh don't actually matter here because they don't really affect the story like why why is jubilee able to reverse from <laughs> reverse at all in the car f- without having stopped it's okay it doesn't matter yeah, that where, where she's like what no fair my truck can't float over the gaps like that <laughs> <laughs> 
how, the feeling of being in a game with NPCs that have more power than you. Then we get Dazzler dropped in like a vampire type movie. Dazzler is suddenly dropped into the middle of Barbarian 2022. Oh. Yeah, labyrinth full of cages and strange creatures. Mm-hmm. And she has to rescue Stitch? That's what I thought. <laughs> it does look exactly like Stitch. <laughs> I love how these situations are fitting those tropes that you were mentioning earlier, Raven. Because he's so cute. She's got to take him white woman trope i gotta rescue the cute thing i'm like bitch that's a mimic no (laughs) and i gotta i gotta say like i brought it up earlier but loving these thought bubbles and like Mm -hmm. i don't know travis lanham is doing really interesting work on the books that they put out this week just because like you know we get a thought bubble and we also get like a broken perforated line whisper in the panel right after Mm -hmm. that that's a lot of fun comics should bring that back people have been saying it and i'm glad they're finally doing it mm-hmm. yeah no, that was the perfect use of lettering right there because you can tell from that like that she's whispering she's oh God. yeah there's dazzler has a lot of like really drippy like sarcastic bubbles in this too mm-hmm. and sh- everybody once they've been drugged have that weird like sliced word yeah Mm-hmm. which is really cool yes that is a really cool effect i love jubilee's black bar swears oh my God. <laughs> every everybody has their own the, the way their speech feels and you can see it in the bubbles and in the way they talk and i love the fact that each of them have their own visual accent that's clearly a stylistic choice like i, I don't know if they're asking me to believe that in a parental advisory comic they can say bitch but not shit so like right, it's right. clearly like a stylistic choice it reminds me of like like Grindhouse comics, but also of Next Wave, which I think we're mm. supposed to think of with Tabby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. True. I, I love that whole panel right after Tabby gets out of the swamp where, like, it's just on Jubilee and she's in the truck and, like, half of it is just Black Bar Swear. And then she's like, reverse, reverse, reverse afterwards. And then it's like, what is she saying? And she's like, fuck, fuck it, he fuck shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, between, between Jubilee's extra sweary, like, just throwing things out there and, like, the strange, this is a very subtle thing, but the strange way that Tabitha talks uh when she says that god awful smell she doesn't say god awful she says god mm-hmm. Do- <laughs> yeah <laughs> left. those subtle things that help like fit the character that's who tabby is that's who she is she is gonna be the backwood bar type yeah like, she's also gonna be the heroic savior for jubilee like i i love that she's just yes. coming here for help but maybe the coolest thing in this entire issue for me is her blowing up the entire floor and then coming out of it covered in blood and screaming jubilee! <laughs> <laughs> like that pose right there like it's so gory but still so fucking hot it's also like so wolverine it is the most wolverine <laughs> thing i've ever seen boom boom do is blow up a floor come out of it covered in blood with her fist clenched she looks like she's about to snick her claws out mm. telling her to put her seatbelt on and then being like we all got our seatbelts on right and then boom boom be like no i don't and then just <laughs> smash through the windshield <laughs> Humans are a little bit more powerful than regular humans and more durable, but like, oh my god, Tevi, you should be dead. No, why why do you think she's able to, like, survive her own explosions? Her body has to be able to absorb that kind of shock. <laughs> like a head-on collision going full speed. I don't know what the top speed of this monster truck is, but I'm assuming it's fast. I mean, a couple of those walls must have slowed it down. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and her concussion makes her vomit just very attractively. <laughs> Which is yeah. like, that's one of the most confusingly sexy pages I've ever seen. Is when she's just <laughs> right. her ass in the air and just like holding her hair out of her face and very expertly vomiting projectile. Right. Well, you know, when you've been a functional alcoholic that long. 
you've probably learned. Also, could we talk about how Dazzler's outfit gets shredded so perfectly? <laughs> He's so rogue in this issue. Like, it is a rogue shred right there. It is. Yeah. It's <laughs> so, so sexy, but still coverage. Yes. Okay, and Jubilee, what Jubilee says there, right there, get in, loser. Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Boom Boom just smacking against the glass of the spectators with her tits like splashed against the wall and all the blood hitting. So I know I know all their clothes get like really covered in blood and shredded here. Do you all know what clothing change they get by issue four of this series? Because I looked ahead at the cover and it's wild. I, I no, I haven't no. seen They all change into different costumes. Like they're like Halloween costumes and it's Dazzler <laughs> in a cheerleader outfit, Jubilee in a sailor a schoolgirl outfit, oh. Boom Boom is in a sexy clown girl out and wolverine is in a sexy witch outfit oh my god (laughs) thank you thank you universe i needed this (laughs) they're in the most campy possible grindhouse exploitation outfits ever and i cannot wait (laughs) then after tabby so sexually throws up we get introduced (laughs) to the soul soul splitter which is laura after she's just destroyed a whole bunch of hand monk ninjas i don't know they look like monks they like hand ninjas i don't know they look like some kind of vampire wizards to me i don't know i can't see them as hand only because they're not in red but that doesn't mean anything Uh, necessarily i mean they had hands (laughs) (laughs) hands and they're wearing like druid cloaks like they go down to their the floor i don't know what's going on with them but they are dead very they are so like this this has to be murder world right like this has to be oh my god what if it's mojo verse oh mojo verse would be really fun for the kind of thing that they're doing especially since they're doing like a play on like an older form of media that was mm-hmm. like extremely trashy and problematic I, I think it's like fun to do that I do think it's like an abandoned murder world I don't think Arcade has anything to do with this but you know he just builds those places and then abandons them when people like scuttle him so yeah, I if it, if it was a functioning murder world I would have expected more robots Yes, mm-hmm. robots less, and sling. less uh, gore <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out where the vampires fit into all of this so same you can have your old tropes you can use even your old tropes just give them new light don't keep leaning into the same old problematic shit clearly we've seen you could be sexy without being problematic you can be sexy and do grindhouse exploitation type stuff but give the characters agency like my god such simple changes and yet so good i i cannot wait to see where this goes i have to say like this is so up leah's wheelhouse like mm-hmm. this one single issue erase any distaste in my mouth that I had for what the trial of Magneto was. (laughs) So, like, are are there any parts of this issue that really stood out to y'all that we didn't really talk about? Or did we capture the full balls-to-the-wall fun of it? Honestly, I think we captured the full balls-to-the-wall fun of it. I don't think we missed a single step. I think we might have talked too much about it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we could ever talk too much about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's just, it's a great issue. It's going to be a great series. I think that i mean it's very clear that it wants to be just dumb sexy bloody fun and i'm here for that i don't necessarily need to pick it apart although it is fun to do so it, i've got to say as a fan of all three all four of the ladies that are in here i know we didn't get much laura but like as the three that we got a lot of everything is so lovingly crafted within their characters but also to fit these classic tropes of these Brian house so like art so good 
good. Like, I, I can't say if the art or the storytelling is better. I think they both, with the whole art team and the writing team, they just came together and they just created this, like, trend, this gleefully, like, beautiful piece of work. I have to say, I think this is probably one of the strongest first issue starts I have ever seen. And first issues are so often so rocky and just fraught with, you know, pace lags or or just stuff that doesn't quite fit and it takes forever to click into place and like this just from the get-go so good so mm-hmm. so good yep i'm i'm completely sold on this book the way that it's just off the walls bonkers absolutely enjoyable I really can't wait for the next issue. <laughs> I hope it comes soon. Which of these Grindhouse Girl tropes are you? <laughs> like, who is drawing you in and saying, like, man, that is really me. I gotta say, surprisingly, I'm like, I really feel like a Jubilee. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. I'm definitely a Jubilee in this group. I don't know. I guess I'm Dazzler. That's <laughs> <laughs> was sad. Huh? Like, I guess. It's like, no, if you want to be tabby, be tabby, it's okay. No, I am definitely not a tabby. That's that's for sure. <laughs> I think for me, well, okay, I still need to kind of see which trope Laura falls into, but mm-hmm. I am very firmly moving into my tabby phase, sans the, the alcohol. <laughs> I can't do that. But I am definitely moving into a hoe phase, so I am super we're going with tabby on this one i'm loving it everybody ready what's up you dumb bitches i'm tk and this podcast is gleefully transgressive hi everyone <laughs> i was not prepared because i'm tori and i don't go here <laughs> <laughs> You can find me on the internet at Tori underscore Sheehan on Twitter and at SM Tori on Instagram. Uh, what's up, everyone? Trying to match that energy, I'm Jake and <laughs> something something slasher story. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. It's pretty great there. I am Nico and I have never with this kind of language and energy <laughs> on this show. Tipper Gore, and- is that you? Yeah, I, 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 I'm Nico. You guys can usually find me being the foulest one on this show, but I really appreciate TK uh, pinch hitting for me there. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N, you dumb dick bags. Oh, my stars and fucking garters. What a book this is. The language. Some of these girls are just so vulgar. If you'd like to follow me over on Twitter and Instagram, you can at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike these vampires, question mark? Or standards and practices. Good God. <laughs> if you have not guessed already, we are, of course, talking about the first issue of Exterminators, written by Leah Williams with art by Carlos Gomez, colors by Brian Valenza, VCs Travis Lanham on letters, and Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on design with a fantastic cover by Federico Vicente and Matt Mila. I dove right in with the foul language because the book does it. And for me, I right off the bat,
that. What a refreshing change of pace. What did you guys think of the tone of this book? I was actually going to say that I was very disappointed that all of the language was censored when I was promised an MA rating. I mean, it's, you know, th- that was one of those things I found really amusing because it's like, this is controversial for Marvel. And yet it's really just like so censored to the point of, you know, this could be on broadcast and it would be perfectly fine. There's something really incredible about the four women that are on the cover because I guess only three of them really rate the book. But, you know, Dazzler is like, hey, everybody, I'm an 80s queer Xanadu it. And then you've got Jubilee, who is like, what's up? I'm here at the arcade because it's 1992. And by the end, because like, no big deal. But like, Tabby really took a long time to come into her own. And I feel like we didn't really get, you know, bangers Tabby till the aughts. And it took Laura even more time than that. And like, there is a really cool element to the way these four came together. Dazzler is the standout character from the four. And so like, the different character from the four and so far as boom boom jubilee and laura have all had really really rough upbringings you know each of them have spent time homeless on the streets running from family stuff like just bad situations and had to really make of themselves who they are really pull themselves up find their chosen family and like you know become who we're seeing on the page now and for dazzler it was a very different journey not an unterrible one but a very different journey mostly documented in the dazzler series oh, half a second I thought you said dad problems and I was like yeah I'm pretty sure all these characters have dad problems and I was like that's a pretty common through line for all of them but Dazzler herself is and this is not to ding her and the upbringing that she comes from in any way but Dazzler having problems a lot of it stems from her father who put on an undue amount of pressure for her to follow in his footsteps of becoming a lawyer and that's about what she wanted to do and become a musician however there are plenty of things that a lot of Dazzler canon I'm like well she kind of does this to herself a lot Hmm. and a lot of her problems are like Dazzler this is your fault this is all on you you did but, this but like in the best kind of way yes like... and in, in an endearing way a la Cher Horowitz in mm-hmm. Clueless mm-hmm. Yeah. it's the very pretty girl that is actually super nice and you really want to root for because you see these bad things happen you're like they shouldn't be happening because she's actually nice and supportive and really a genuine person and I just want to clarify that her dad is like he's a judge but he's not exactly Judge Turpin he's a little bit more like Judge Reinhold so is this this situation with this cheating boyfriend another situation that Allie has gotten herself into? Well, yes and no. Jake, you brought this up, and I do kind of wish Dazzler is stopped being defined by the men in her life. Reading a Dazzler's initial run where she had uh, at least four confirmed partners and at least maybe a few <laughs> more other potential love interests between characters like Angel and Quasar, it did kind of feel, okay, is this the vehicle we really need to put Dazzler back in again? I, I don't know if we really need to have the specific catalyst be Dazzler breaking up with a boyfriend because I think we've already seen it before. Well, and for me, I'm torn on the like, it could, it's believable and a really like easy point of entry for the story. This is a fine jumping on point for Dazzler because it's very Dazzler. It's very Dazzler to be dating a vampire for months and not fucking realize. See, and I actually, my biggest problem with the relationship is that she's letting him stay in her apartment alone after only two months. Mm. I was like, I know that you know better. No, it's on brand for her. I was going to say, she (laughs) might not know better. 
honey. No, she's been she's say I love you on like the second date. Hold on. Let me just speak for all of the bad decision making people who try to look their most fabulous. Okay. So there is an extent to which when you want to be loved as badly as Dazzler wants to be loved, you have to learn to not look at certain parts of yourself that you can't really face. And in order to erect those sort of deafening blinders where you're able to shut off a number of your senses, you need to lean into other parts of yourself. I have to imagine that without ever meaning to, Dazzler can be on the phone with you for 45 minutes and talk for 42 and a half of them about herself before asking, how are you? Oh, I'm at the place I have to go. Bye. Really sorry when I do it to you, TK. So I really think that one of the things that Dazzler exists in is a perpetual state of kind of funhouse mirrors where she can never look directly at herself long enough to look at somebody else. And I guess I've never related so much to Dazzler. I might mute myself in a second, but... I like that particular image because it's such a nice callback to where Dazzler is playing around with the Siege Perilous and uses her powers on it. And suddenly in all of the like refractor, all the facets of the Siege Perilous sees these different aspects of who she could have been and who she could be. It's kind of like a, a teaser to when they all do go through the Siege Perilous and face themselves. And, you know, we're seeing the like long end of that over in X. And I agree with your point that Dazzler kind of exists in a world of funhouse mirrors where she's constantly kind of wondering if this decision was the right decision or if she should have backtracked and gone and done that. She can't seem to figure out where she wants to really dedicate the energy in her life. Is she an X-Man? Is she like a mutant activist? Is she a performer? Uh, you know, she, For a while, she was by necessity like an underground mutant activist performer. I don't know. She's, she's a lot of different things, but I don't think she knows which one of those things really gives her the most. And I think one of the things I love about this book is, and Jake, I I thank you for queuing me up with this earlier in the day, but we go from funhouse to grindhouse with this book, and it is such a genre-heavy, specific type of story and specific type of voice and comedy that, for one thing, it feels really plausible for all these characters, so that's what I loved. But also, it feels like, regardless of what we all know about Dazzler as fans of the character, as people that have read previous backstory from her and that have expectations, a lot of what this book is doing is playing to genre beats and beats of the style of story and the style of comedy that it wants to tell. So even if we're looking at something like, oh man, not another Dazzler and her romance problem story, for me, there's a way in which I'm permissive of it in this case because it's really in the service of getting us into this particular narrative. And this particular narrative is one I feel like is really serving these characters well because it is allowing them to give us a plausible version of their voice one in which like it can be acknowledged that they are foul-mouthed and sure it's a little censored in a way that feels very okay marvel you're gonna sell as many books as possible but at the same time like we're adults we know what they're saying we can kind of laugh about it and it feels like you know it feels like the way especially jubilee and tabby would talk to each other oh 100 like i for for all that i would have loved to see it uncensored i was like this is kind of some of the 
realist dialogue that I've seen out of a lot of X-Men comics that I've been reading in a while. I found it really kind of true of just being like, why are we at a dump? Like, <laughs> what is up with this? Why does this shot taste so weird? Like, there's just, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I really did enjoy it. And you're right. Like, it is sort of setting up that, like, grindhouse thing where it's like, girls, my boyfriend just dumped me. Let's go to a city bar and forget all about it. And I'm just like, yeah, we're, we're setting up for, like, this genre really, really well. So I really, I really enjoyed it. And I also enjoyed the fact that when Nico was bringing up how kind of each of these characters is part of a different decade, like, I very much noticed that Dazzler seems to, like, live in a world of 70s. Yes. Because, like, it's one thing for her to dress that way. It's another thing where her boyfriend is, like, open shirt, giant medallion, <laughs> hairy chest, long hair, mustache, whatever. Like, like He's a is... 70s grindhouse vampire. Right! Like, it's all, it, like, she's just, like, living in that world. I was like, oh, okay, like, I get what we're going with here. I really did enjoy this once I got over the fact that, like, they were playing at the at the framing as opposed to actually giving us, you know, a real, like, actual mature audience. Because there's a part of me that's like, I know that comics get rated, so, like, it must be so strange to have, like, a T for teens on the outside and then inside there's, like, an MA rating. I also just need to point out that I'm really relieved that we're talking about Grindhouse vampires, but I would have preferred to be talking about Roundhouse vampires, because whenever my life gets yeah, me so down, I know I can go down. Exactly. Big Roundhouse fan, the idea that, like, you can just suspend reality and break into song has defined my every bit of fiction since then. But you And know, a lot of your regular life, too. And a lot of <laughs> Um, because one of the things that this offers is a chance to escape sort of what we have termed. So it's me, Nathan, and TK, and we have been loving the shit out of covering Avengers. And the term that we have come up with for the general state of Marvel vampires is crummy. And these are super crummy, normal, like these are super grindhouse vampires instead of the super crummy, normal vampires that you get at Marvel, where they're all very, you know, vaguely offensive to Eastern Europeans. <laughs> This is going to turn into one of those, his name is not Mo Mo Mojo Jojo. Like so you think he's either going to go Mojo or maybe Arcade? That's where I'm hoping this all goes? Well, yeah. Okay, so structure-wise, there's a lot to gesture towards Arcade working with some vampires here. Yeah, the various, like, them being in various zones. Yeah, they're separated and, from each other. Yeah. They've got tasks. There's, a, there's, there's an a objective in each zone. This is very arcade tease uh, in the sense, but the only thing I have reservations about it being arcade is that Boom Boom and Dazzler were placed in situations where their powers, using their powers would be a bad situation. Jubilee really wasn't. I don't think her driving around with a bunch of pitfalls prevents her from throwing fireworks at people. A lot of arcade rooms tend to be a lot, very personalized and they'd be very like teasing and testing your ability to kind of overcome, kind of like Fear Factor, essentially. Arcade is just kind of the Fear Factor of the Marvelverse, but extreme and a lot more money. I, I do kind of see it. This tends to maybe lean a little bit towards to like the way he tends to set things up also transported into this much larger world under a city well the thing about arcade's mo is that he gives them a way out because that's the that's that's how he understands sportsmanship he's like oh yeah i'm gonna try and murder you but you'll always have a chance to get out it's not a very good one regardless of my reservations about the beginning if this was like the dumb horror movie of this season because you know we're in spooky season now i'd absolutely watch the shit out of this mm -hmm. oh 100 like this has a very beautiful setup 
for like a really earnest, cheesy, good B-horror film about three girls just saying, fuck it, we want a party, being kidnapped by vampires and blasting their way out of it. Oh my God, is this the mutant Venga boys? <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Oh my God. It works on so many levels. The mutant bus is coming and everybody's gunning. It's perfect. New York to San Francisco, where they are now. Right there in San Fran? I, I, <laughs> uh, they're in West Hollywood, I think, is what she said. They're in WeHo? I think that's what Dazzler said. She's she's like, you gotta come to this bar over by me in West Hollywood. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which makes sense for how Dazzler lives her life. If we're talking, Dazzler is almost a Jennifer Coolidge of the Marvel right. yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Precisely that. Well, here's my next question. Does the Mr. B of Mr. B's karaoke have something to do with this? That is a clue that I've stuck in my back pocket to review throughout the series for sure. Because mm-hmm. mm. like, who's Mr. B? I don't know enough about people's actual names. I spent a lot of time staring at Dazzler's butt on the first page being like, is she taking the Praxis exam or is her last name Praxis? Or like, what is this about? You got a Praxis to get a booty like that. I would, you know, I, I would not mind learning Dazzler's ass a little bit, but you know, it's uh that's one of the things that like, I don't know, this book was like, it's just hot. <laughs> this book is just sexy. Oh my God. They're all gorgeous. Like I had a hot second where I was like, oh no, two beautiful blondes who are kind of ditzy. How am I going to tell them apart? But one's going to stay in pigtails the whole time. So I feel pretty pleased about this. And that was one of the big questions I had throughout the book. You know, Leah Williams is a writer that I really trust to write some fantastic female voices in the Marvel Universe. I mean, I trust her to write almost anybody. She wrote one of my favorite Magneto moments in the history of Magneto. So to go from that, which was just like a stunning, heartbreaking moment, to just Jubilee and Tabby talking shit to each other, like, there's a lot in terms of character recognition that I really trust Leah Williams with. I think the thing that I was wondering about was, would the art as drawn by a man come off as sort of irreverent and funny, but also sort of reverent to these characters and be empowering and fun to the general concept or would it just come off as like how sexualized can we make these three in this context that is so silly that you know I I can maybe get away with some extra sexualization and I think this is really walking a tightrope but I think it's on the side of good for me. Oh, for sure. Like, I did not feel like these, like I was staring at, like, exploitative uh, sexy imagery. I've And until you actually brought that up, I was just like, no, this is fun. It's silly. But I'm like, no, this really could have gone really gross really fast in how we were drawing these ladies in these in these positions. And I think having things like Jubilee saying to Tabby, you look like if Barbie was a sex addict, like for the <laughs> for the writer to write that and probably for the artist to read that line of dialogue before before really getting to into the characters like it kind of gives you permission to draw her as if Barbie was a sex addict and then the whole thing is funny and we're all in on the joke I think that's uh, you make a very good point of it kind of everybody being in on the joke and the creative team it's because it's kind of the art it's kind of the parody of a woman drawing the male view but in a way that like we're, mm. po- we're going to poke fun at this like the, I think these are some characters that have definitely been drawn in a way that maybe some you know uh, consumers and fans would be like hey this is a little cheesecakey dazzler is no exception to this 
if, especially if you're reading that original run. But I think this book is where it's going to take a moment to like have some levity and be like, no, we're going to poke fun at the way that other artists have drawn these characters before or drawn women and how there have been tradition of how women have been drawn in comics of like, yeah, no, this isn't, this is bad, but we're going to laugh. I definitely agree with this. Is like there's a there's a line being towed and everyone's kind of smirking around it in a fun way. I particularly see that in the way Boom Boom gets drawn in the later part of the comic. She's got all these really traditionally heroic masculine poses going on, like on uh, Digital 27 and 28 and 30. She's got a lot of like really like statuesque stances that are like contrast really interestingly to her because she's such a like foul mouthed fun crazy ridiculous character that to see these very serious poses on time i also love that we as like a people have this horrible habit of trying to simplify things down to their basest and like that's not a strike at fandom that's sort of a strike at all humans and we get into that oh it's the light mutant well which light mutant oh the 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 media e1 well which one uh, the girl the which one the, with the pixie hair and like it just keeps going in the same cycles and one of the things that this book did so cute is like when wolverine punisher and ghost rider team up does there need to be a plot no there just needs to be big muscles and even bigger attitude great we're gonna use that as our framework there's a breakup that's like a four-page story kind of thing and they're like no it's an issue shut the fuck up we don't need to explain ourselves oh and you think that these women are just that interchangeable here's why not only are they not interchangeable where they each have their own personality you don't understand their powers and oh i know i understand anytime three women are in a title together you need something to sell it sure how about wolverine and there's just this this so you know and your children will know (laughs) that was the night that the lights went out on your misogyny And I think it gives everybody a chance to have fun with all of the stereotypes and tropes that get heaped onto these characters while also being so smart as to show you all the ways in which if you've been falling in love with all three of these light girls for different reasons at the same time and you know why they're all so different, you don't need to listen to sort of an asshole side of fandom that would group them all together and say, oh, it's all just the same character on the same beat like oh if we've always got to have wolverine in a book with too many women okay we've got wolverine in a book with too many women i mean isn't it better to have a book that's too many women than too few books with no women that's you know one of the hardest things is the x-men have so long been dominated by strong women and that's just a virtue of a combination of queers love strong women straight men often love being bossed around by strong women and women get to see themselves in those strong women or have opinions on them and stand aside that role and not connect with like I understand that we often see the predominant readership of comics in one light but these strong women to say it again have been so pervasive throughout X-Men history that it's just this side of impossible to dial into any strong male character without finding an equally complex and as dynamically rich female character narrative that ran intertwiningly or parallel 
or unrelated, but you just can't avoid it. Like, I don't think you can really read a whole lot of Gambit books for a while without running into a whole lot of Psylocke. And that, of course, being the Betsy, Psylocke, Conan fusion character, right? Hey, problematic. And I don't think that Gambit and Psylocke have fuck all to do with each other, but they both had anchor stories in a number of titles that they were both in for quite a while. And yeah, you know, with that in mind, even if you came for the Gambit, you still got the Psylocke and giving these women that space, reclaiming the fuck out of that space for these women who always had it because it's not claiming it, it is reclaiming. It's, I yeah, I don't know. This is in the grand tradition of Wheezy and Walter Simonson's Wolverine Havoc meltdown and it just stands up. I don't know. I didn't think it was the world's greatest issue, but what it stands for really has me excited about the potentiality of future plans for these women and other underappreciated and maybe preferably a few more minority women. It's great seeing an Asian American in Jubilee, but the quality of melanin in this book was sorely lacking. Cecilia Reyes is a character that I could see keeping up with these characters in terms of like being willing to swear like a sailor and go out and get drunk when she's not on the clock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she's someone who needs to be shown having a good time and not just working in the healing gardens constantly. Like, where's Cecilia Reyes's uh, X-Men Unlimited issue? And I think that that's actually like a thing that bothers me as, uh, you know, a, a woman of color that she is constantly shown as always working, mm-hmm. having to be too serious, limited patience for other people. I love this character and I love her despite these flaws that have always been in her character. But when you get one side of a mm-hmm. character, it unfortunately does seem to usually be a character of color is the one who was left very one or two dimensional. I mean, I would love to see a woman of color get to write like Storm and Cecilia Reyes going out and having a like a night of fun because those are two characters. I mean, Storm, you know, we elevate Storm as a character and as readers to that level of goddess in ways that I think Storm gets a lot of really fantastic stuff, but she does not always get black women writing her and she also does not always get a lot of fun. She gets to be a fucking mm-hmm. boss and there's absolutely no challenge that we don't believe Storm can take, but she doesn't get to have a night out drinking and talking shit. And I think that's something this book shows that I think we can have a lot of fun with that idea as a concept and with a writer who can speak to the characters that they're writing, having a night out. You can also do it in a way where there is an action story involved. So we don't get back into the like me bitching about how I want Micro Cohen slice <laughs> of life books. It can be an actual superhero adventure book, but with the trappings of and the inclusion of moments of comedy and and levity and plausible living of an enjoyable life. And I love that for the women in this book. But yeah, I think that as soon as you see it, it points out the number of other characters, especially women of color, that deserve to get that same treatment. You know, I think the last time we saw Storm go out and have a good time was during Ten of Swords when she and Logan got drunk together and then she had to fight death or dance with him. I can't remember. And who 
hasn't had a night (laughs) but yeah i mean i i completely agree it speaks to how i mean storm especially she she pulls a lot of the prominent woman of color in the franchise energy when there are so many great characters that we can also elevate you know we tell a lot of storm stories we're starting to see more tempo stories now which is phenomenal i want to see more cecilia reyes stories like she's a reluctant ex-person and i want to i want to get into her head and find out how she feels about being on Krakoa after spending years in the closet as a mutant trying really really hard not to not to be a part of all of that um, I think there's a really interesting story in that that we're not getting it's also always interesting as you know I don't always lead the rooms I am just sort of here sometimes to facilitate and you know I'm also the producer I go in and I edit the stuff so like I come to get a vibe and a pattern on how we talk about these books it becomes pretty clear the way certain titles are going to engage it's not always across writer lines or genre lines or even character lines but something that I knew going into this room was going to be that there wasn't a lot of plot to discuss and it made me think about the nature of frivolous stories and one of those elements is like I said earlier when men have frivolous stories it's mostly because they just get to be big bruiser baller men and break stuff women's frivolous stories quote unquote I flash back to the first story at Marvel written by a woman which was a two page backup story about Jean Grey in an early issue of X-Men in which one of her hobbies is listed as cleaning up and vacuuming after the boys. And, you know, it's like 1966 or something. So it's certainly in the past, but you find yourself in these positions where the nature of frivolity and the nature of the looseness of plot in these issues, it gives us a chance to kind of like think about characters doing dumb things. Like I know that I have spent time in person with everybody in this room. So I can kind of project how these incredible creatures behave. I can imagine when TK gets excited and says, oh, well, and, and like, I can see how he moves his head. And I know the way Jonah like smiles when he's going to make a joke. And I can see Jake getting really excited about something and like starting to move forward on the couch or, you know, mostly Tori just holds me together in one piece and keeps the dustpan behind me as I slowly break down. So there's a dynamic sense of well-rounded person that comes from these unimportant moments that we can't get from not these unimportant moments. It's why every sitcom or dramedy started adding the place everybody goes to eat or drink because the humanizing accessibility of ingestion, of imbibing with others, of relaxing after a long day sitting next to your friends. These common, though not explicitly universal, intimacies are best supported in books like this where you're not spending 32 pages each month trying to explain the system of judgment. I just get to see like, and I mean this like as a professional queer disaster. Check out my scruff profile. I love these sluts. I really do. I I love these drunk sluts. (laughs) I also want to make sure that we're aware that Nico's not tooting his own horn for making you aware that we did a six page issue like this in Capes and Boots over on Kid Riot where I was like, oh, our main boss bitch, Roberta Whitley, uh, never gets to be having fun. We're going to give her a, a taco and tequila night with one of our fave, like, higher ranking superheroes and have a little a little arc where they kick back and we learn a little bit more about each of the 
them to flesh them out a bit. Yes, it's because that sort of fleshing out, that depth of person, that exploration of powerful women and powerful women of color and men and queer men and non-binary folk and fuck it, if this is the Marvel Universe, talking trees. I don't care. That level of giving realism to someone, it's it's allowing them to take off the mask. And if we care enough about these characters to spend $4.99 on their book, I want to see them take the mask off. That might kind of sum it up perfectly. So I want to see if anybody has any final thoughts before we start to wrap this up. In perfect for her announcement into the MCU, and I understand and I fully am in agreement and supportive of having more um, women of color in this title. I think this would be uh, especially awesome to have a different avenue that's a little more action focused, maybe a little more horror thrown in where we can see some people in some different elements and see how writers Leah really is able to shine and showcase these character strengths and characterization through a different lens in a different setting. However, if I put my hat in the ring for something I mean, if we're dealing with vampires and we already have Boom Boom, I don't understand why Elsa Bloodstone can't be in this. (laughs) And she's looking amazing in that trailer so fucking hot i needed me an a latinx elsa bloodstone that's that's is that's that what girl. an elsa bloodstone is is that yes. what we've been talking about a vampire lady <laughs> yeah she's well a monster hunter she's a monster oh, she, she is marvel's resident monster hunter right that they do not utilize at all except for one appearance maybe once a year but yeah, I mean, I would love to see this trend of a night out turns into some superheroing, but in a way where we get to actually enjoy some of the idea of the night out. I would love to see it for characters like Elsa Bloodstone and other women that aren't just ex-women, but that we know have interesting internal lives that we want to see made manifest. I just really enjoy how there's some fun layering happening here. It's a really great callback to the Outback Girls Night Out issue where Jubilee first appears. I really like how each of the main four women featured in this story, I'm I'm counting Wolverine, is like representative of their decade. Like you've got the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the first decade of the aughts. And that's, I I like that kind of neatness. Um, I'm curious if that's a thing that she's doing, if if that's something that Lee is doing intentionally and will continue to draw characters from further down the X timeline in. I'm I'm here for the story. It's it's fun. It's stupid. It's bloody. It's a romp and I'm, I'm ready for it. 